Stay tuned for a transcribed feature broadcast produced by United Nations Radio and starring John Garfield. Dr. Albert Einstein will be heard with a special message later in the program. Dr. Einstein, would you say atomic energy is here to stay? That, madame, is not the question. The question is, are we? Listen. 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 This is a story of atom and evil. The courtship is causing a great of evil. For evil got him drunk on prejudice and hate. And she taught him how to gamble with humanity's fate. United Nations Radio presents John Garfield in Year of Decision. A progress report on the atom. Ladies and gentlemen, this is not a usual radio program. We tell you quite frankly, we are not here to entertain. We are here to present the facts of a case. It is a case in which we are all involved. And we thought you might, therefore, be interested in hearing the facts as plainly as we can give them. About atomic energy, that is. Some of these facts you will have heard before. Others you may hear for the first time on this program. But this is a year in which all of us, you and I, are faced with an alternative. To be or not to be. When making a decision between alternatives, a sensible man looks where he is, how he got here, and where he can go from here. And that's what we'd like to do now. Maybe unraveling the threads will make the pattern clearer. I guess the realization that something new had been added came to some of us like this. The White House has just made an important announcement on the war. And to bring you this story, we interrupt our program to take you to Washington. This is Ralph Howard Peterson in Washington. I have just returned from the White House where it has just been announced that the United States is now using an atomic bomb, the most powerful explosive yet developed. others, the atomic age was announced by newspaper headlines like these. In Buenos Aires, con poderosas bombas empieza a usar la energía atómica. In Paris, le président Truman proclame l'ère atomique. In Vienna, Verwendung der Atomenergie für friedliche Zwecke. In London, basic power of universe released. In Moscow, Atomne bombas broschen na Hiroshima. In Washington, Day of Atomic Energy hailed by President. New Age ushered. New Age? What kind of New Age was being ushered in? Or rather, what kind of New Age are we being ushered into? Here from the American magazine of a few years ago are the words of the Chancellor of the University of Chicago, 
where the early wartime experiments were made. Mr. Robert Hutchins. Our paramount problem, our chief hazard in the atomic age, will be what to do with our spare time. The atomic city will be built along scientifically functional lines to provide maximum comfort and convenience to its inhabitants. Streets will be hundreds of feet wide. Buildings will be far apart. The only smoke will come from fireplaces used for pleasure. They will not be needed for heat. Heat will be so plentiful that it will even be used to melt snow as it falls. Parks, playgrounds, and other places of recreation will abound, for leisure will be almost unlimited. A very few individuals working a very few hours a day at very easy tasks in the central atomic power plant will provide all the heat, light, and power required by the community and all its surrounding areas. And those utilities will be so cheap that their cost can hardly be reckoned. Factories will operate only on a comparatively few hours a week to produce more goods than can be used. They will produce, among other things, new metals, foods, and vehicles which will run for a year or two on two ounces or less of atomic fuel. The atomic city will have a central diagnostic laboratory, but only a small hospital, if any at all, for most human ailments will be cured as rapidly as they're diagnosed. The end of all human suffering is in sight. If we're permitted to live at all, there's no reason we cannot expect to live as long as Methuselah. If we are permitted to live at all, there's the rub. For the energy that may make the dream possible also makes possible the end of the dreamer. Five years later, how close are we to the dream? Or are we closer to a nightmare? Let's ask a man who owns one, Professor Harold Urey, who said, We have been and are now in an atomic armaments race. Ask another. Dr. Albert Einstein, who said... Armament is no protection against war, but leads inevitably to war. It may be the public is not fully aware that in another war, atomic bombs will be available in large quantities. Atomic bombs have already become the most economical form of destruction that can be used. Unless there is a determination not to use them far stronger than can be noted today... Atomic warfare will be hard to avoid. Dr. J. Robert Oppenheimer has written, With misgivings, and there ought to be misgivings, we are rearming, arming atomically as in other fields. There are not many men who see an acceptable alternative to this course. But whether these measures which we are taking appear excessive or, on the whole, insufficient, they must at least have one effect. Inevitably, they must appear to commit us to a future of secrecy, of coercion, and to an imminent threat of war. Dr. Andrei Vyshinsky, in official translation. We in the Soviet Union are utilizing atomic energy, but not in order to stockpile atomic bombs, although I am convinced that if, unfortunately and to our great regret, this were necessary, we should have as many of these as we should need, no more and no less. Mr. Trigver Lee. When the United Nations was established in San Francisco, it was created as an organization for the entire world. Now it is proposed to split the world permanently into two camps, 
There's only one possible end to that road. Sooner or later, a third world war. These are sobering words. We ask ourselves, where do we go from here? Perhaps it would be most helpful to ask first how we got here. Because the bomb that went off that day in August 1945 wasn't the beginning. It was only an incident in a very long story. It began this way. The next voice you hear will not be that of the actual speaker. According to convention, there are a sweet and a bitter, a hot and a cold, and color. But in truth, there are only atoms and a vacuum. All things consist of indivisible particles, which I call atoms. These move in empty space, and by their coming together, produce being, and by their separation, destruction. That was not the speaker's actual voice, because the speaker lived over 400 years before the birth of Christ. His name was Lukipos, and anyway, it would have been Greek to us. In the early 1800s, Napoleon Bonaparte was too busy marching to hear this news. The theory that all chemical elements are composed of atoms has been corroborated. Before the First World War, the structure of the atom had been determined and the fact that it held great quantities of energy. And by 1918, the British scientist Ernest Rutherford was able to report. In, uh, in my experiments, I've used radium explosions to crack and pull the electric charges out of the nuclei of nitrogen atoms and thereby cause them to fall together into new arrangements. And in the middle of the Great Depression of the 30s, when most of us were wondering how to pay next month's coal bill, a great scientist named Arthur Eddington wrote, I am going to tantalize you with a vision of vast supplies of energy, surpassing the wildest desires of the engineer. Sources so illimitable that the idea of fuel economy might be put out of mind. We have not to travel far to find this land of El Dorado, this paradise of power. The energy to which I am referring exists abundantly in everything that we see and handle. Only it is so securely locked away that for all the good it can do us, it might as well be in the remotest star, unless we can find the key to the lock. We know very well that the cupboard is locked, but we are drawn irresistibly to peep through the keyhole, like boys who know where the jam is kept. And a strange kind of jam it was. Let's take a peek through the keyhole ourselves. Every material thing is made of atoms. There are no exceptions. The atom is about one hundred millionth of an inch in diameter, or very, very small. Let's enlarge one atom so we can see it better. Ah, there we are. Now we can see what the atom is made of. In the center of each atom is a nucleus. That's the nucleus. Around the nucleus whirl little particles called electrons. Just to give you the picture, if the nucleus, the center of the atom, were as large as a U.S. 50-cent piece or a British half-crown, the electrons whirling around it would be down the street and a couple of blocks away. If the nucleus were as large as a baseball, 
the whirling electrons would be about half a mile away. Now, let's look inside the baseball, that's the nucleus. The nucleus contains a number of particles of two kinds. Protons, which are very positive, and neutrons, which are very neutral. The various elements are known by the number of positive particles or protons in their nucleus. For instance, uh, hydrogen, the lightest element, has one. Helium, the second lightest element, has two. But uranium is one of the heaviest. It has 92 protons. Now, this proportion of protons to neutrons makes heavy elements like uranium a little unstable, like Humpty Dumpty sitting on the wall. Inside the nucleus, all the protons and neutrons are rushing about with tremendous energy. But give that unstable nucleus a good shove. Something has to give. The nucleus breaks. <laughs> But while all the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty Dumpty together again, the nucleus merely rearranges what's left into a new element. But meanwhile, and here's the important thing, the breakup of the nucleus has sent some of those particles shooting off into space with tremendous force. And if the flying neutrons from one exploded nucleus can be made to break up the nucleus of other unstable atoms, then we would have a self-propelled chain of atomic power. Hot stuff, huh? Some jam. Fine in a locked cupboard. But the boys finally found the key. And Pandora's box had nothing on what happened when this lid got lifted in August of 1945. The editorial that day in the New York Times said... The bomb that dropped on Hiroshima was doubtless heard by human ears for hundreds of miles around. But morally, it was heard around the world. Said the matron... My dear, I hear this radioactivity can keep you young, well, almost indefinitely. Said the clerk... But if the chain reaction got out of hand once, the whole world would blow up. Said the housewife... They say it'll do all your cooking, washing, ironing, cleaning, and free. Said the athlete... Yeah, but all you need is one sip of that radioactive water, and you're not much good for a man. Said the poor man... It'll revolutionize money. They'll be making gold out of lead any time now. Said the rich man. Any crackpot scientist anywhere can blow us to kingdom come. We're at their mercy. Said the reformer. This is God's punishment for the world's wickedness. Said the other reformer. I tell you, it's the work of the devil. But let us first look at the facts. What did the atomic bomb which fell on Hiroshima actually do, according to the official reports? Here is what they say. This is official. 60% of Hiroshima was destroyed. 
Over four square miles were totally destroyed. Seven square miles were seriously damaged. And structures, as far as 10 miles from the center of the blast, were leveled. The interiors of all concrete buildings were gutted. The majority of the wooden buildings within half a mile were reduced to splinters. Fire raged throughout the city for 10 hours. Over 90% of the residents were killed or injured, or 306,545. There were 92,133 lives lost. Although six months later, nearly 14,000 bodies had not been found. Of those people within 3,000 feet, about one or two in each building, perhaps five or 10% escaped death from blast or burn. But many died later from radioactive rays, which affect the blood-forming tissues in the bone marrow. Now an unofficial report, direct from Hiroshima, sometime later. There are still great, tragic mounds of desolation stretching in every direction from the center of the city. There is still a helpless sense of uneasiness. One Japanese told our interpreter this afternoon, we are wondering what to do when the war comes between Russia and the United States. If they use only ordinary bombs, we could evacuate to the suburbs. But they will undoubtedly use atomic bombs, and in that case... In that case? That was Hiroshima, Japan. This we know one bomb of the earliest type could do. We also know that a new hydrogen bomb, a thousand times as powerful, is in the news, says Dr. Einstein. The H-bomb appears on the public horizon as a probably attainable goal. Its accelerated development has been solemnly proclaimed by the president. Radioactive poisoning of the atmosphere and hence the annihilation of any life on Earth has been brought within the range of technical possibility. That brings us up to date on the bomb, one of the uses we have found for atomic energy. But is that all there is to atomic energy? Soviet scientist Peter Kapitzer once remarked, My views on the use of atomic energy as a weapon is the same as the use of electrical power for electrocution on the electric chair. No. Atomic energy is much more than an instrument of death. Listen again to Mr. Hutchins in the early days of the new atomic age. It is the most important discovery to mankind since the discovery of fire. Medically, it provides the most important discovery since the microscope. Economically, which means industrially and commercially, it is the most important discovery since the discovery of the wheel. I know that less than 15 pounds of atomic fuel, no more than a small child can carry in a basket, will produce enough electricity to meet all the demands of the United States for one year with a comfortable excess in reserve. One boxcar of atomic fuel will produce enough energy to heat every building, illuminate every electric bulb, and operate every machine in the entire world for 1,000 years. How much of the dream is within our grasp? Let's take a look in the United States, for instance. 
Here are the words of David Lilienthal in October 1947, when he was still chairman of the United States Atomic Energy Commission. What are the prospects for electric power from atomic energy, for factory and home and farm? When can we expect a substantial part of this country's requirements, say 10 to 20 percent, to come from atomic energy plants? Are such things right around the corner? No. This doesn't mean that within the next 12 to 24 months, useful electric power couldn't be actually developed from a nuclear reactor, that is to say, from atomic energy. Such atomic power could turn motors and light bulbs and heat buildings. As a matter of fact, on a demonstration basis, a thousand kilowatts or so, that could certainly be done. But we are not entirely dependent upon the future. Remember when we looked through the keyhole at how atomic energy was released? The neutrons went whirling inside the nucleus until the nucleus was exploded and flying neutrons shot out into space? Now, when this happens inside an atomic pile or furnace, great numbers of those neutrons are flying around, and anything you put into the furnace is likely to get hit. Only instead of getting wounded, the substance gains a new kind of life. The particles which hit it, having been newly released from the nucleus, are radioactive. They make the substance radioactive, too. Now, let's take a piece of metal, say, cobalt. Put it in the pile, bombard it with radioactive neutrons, and soon our piece of cobalt isn't feeling like... He's a new man. He feels radioactive. Just to distinguish him from other bits of cobalt who still feel the same old way, we call this one an isotope of cobalt which means he's still cobalt, but a little different. In the same way, we might have an isotope of iodine, let's say, or phosphorus. These are radioactive isotopes, and they have a great advantage. We can follow them among all the other atoms just as if they had a striped suit on, because we have an instrument known as a Geiger counter, whose heart goes thump whenever he's near a radioactive atom. What use is all this? Let's ask a man who ought to know, Dr. Paul C. Abersole, chief of the U.S. Atomic Energy's Isotope Division at Oak Ridge, Tennessee. Have you heard, Doctor, of any new industrial uses for these radioactive isotopes? Well, they can be used for a number of control gadgets to help control better the products that are being produced, uh, keep the thickness of a sheet of material more uniform, or they can also be used to find out how to make better steel, better alloys, all types of better materials for improving the materials of industry. You'd like a for instance? Let's visit a factory actually using atomic products. Here in the Shamrock factory in Patterson, New Jersey, we're about to witness a preview of the new Vatcraft machine which will revolutionize the dyeing of cloth. Uh, Dr. Ravage, how does your process mark a first step in the peaceful use of atomic energy in industry? Our process employs radioactive source materials such as uranium compounds. And the products of our work are directly available to the consumer in a finished product, such as garments and clothes and fabrics. Hasn't that ever happened before? The consumer has never received a product directly made with a radioactive material. Well, Dr. Ravage, uh, would you care to say anything about the future possibilities for your process in industrial uses? 
Yes, we're quite enthusiastic about the future. Laboratory investigations have shown that our process is very definitely applicable in fields of color photography and the manufacturing of plastics, in the manufacture of printing inks and pastes and pigments, and just all sorts of uses in the field of photochemistry. Would you say that uh, we are now getting very close to what is popularly labeled as the atomic age? I think our laboratory investigations, along with the work of others in the field, is bringing about an awareness of the atomic age and bringing the atomic age closer to the public. Now let's go and ask Dr. Abersold at Oak Ridge another question. Doctor, are there any developments in the field of atomic medicine that look promising to you? You realize that these radioactive elements can be traced in all types of life processes, uh, both in a healthy animal or a healthy person, as well as in diseased animals and diseased persons. We can learn in detail the difference in the way the cells behave when they're diseased as compared with when they're uh, normal. Uh, this type of medical knowledge, I think, is the key to future medical progress, and it is in this direction that the radioactive isotopes will find their most uh, use. Take, for instance, radioactive phosphorus. Let's go to Mount Sinai Hospital in New York and ask Dr. Lewis Wasserman how he uses radioactive phosphorus in treating a patient. It's used very effectively in treating two serious blood diseases, polycythemia vera, which is a disease where too many red blood cells are manufactured. The blood becomes sluggish and clogs up the blood vessels. The other is leukemia, which some people call cancer of the blood, and is actually in excess of the white blood cells. Uh, can you use this radioactive phosphorus in treating other types of cancers too? Yes, it's very effective where you can get at the cancer. For instance, on the skin where the treatment is the simplest we've ever had. All you do is put a drop of radioactive phosphorus on a piece of filter paper that just fits over the affected area. And you leave it in contact with the cancer just long enough for the radiation to kill the tumor cell. Uh, does this treatment leave another scar? Practically none, much less than a surgical scar. Or take radioactive iodine. Let's ask Dr. Solomon Silva of Mount Sinai Hospital. There are two uses for radioactive iodine. First, we employ it in diagnosis in order to find out whether a disease is present. For example, say you wanted to spot a man in a crowd of a thousand. If he's mixed up in the crowd, it's almost impossible to see him. But if you paint a red stripe down his back, it's easy to spot him, no matter where he goes in the crowd. That's exactly how we spot or trace these single atoms of radioactive iodine. It doesn't matter where they go in the body, because they are tagged, and we can easily follow them in the body by using a Geiger Miller counter. Well, Dr. Silver, can you, uh, can you tell us how you administer this radioactive iodine to use it as a tracer? It's very simple. The patient simply swallows a little radioactive iodine like ordinary drinking water. Then what happens? The iodine goes into his stomach, is absorbed in the bloodstream, and within a very short time, it concentrates in his thyroid gland. Then with a Geiger Miller counter, we measure the amount that he has fixed in his thyroid gland, and this is a measure of how active his thyroid is. We asked Dr. Silva if we could see these theories at work, if we could watch them test the patient who had drunk one of those atomic cocktails. Dr. Feitelberg made the test. Now, would you lie down, please, on the stretcher? That's right. Just relax and lie quietly. I'm going to put the Gage Muller tube over her neck. I see. 
And the clicks you hear now are the disintegration of radioactive iodine, which has concentrated in her thyroid gland. I'll turn the stop clock on now. And now I will take a time which it will take for a thousand disintegrations, or I should say for a thousand counts to occur. Uh, Dr. Feidelberg, what is it you're measuring now? We will know how much radioactive iodine we gave this lady two days ago. And now I want to see how long it takes for a thousand clicks to register. The faster it goes, the more iodine is in the thyroid gland, and this means the more active a thyroid is. Uh, doctor, what does it read now? 45 seconds now. It's coming to a close to the shut-off point. Now it's off. 49 seconds for a thousand disintegrations. Thank you. You can go now. Uh, excuse me, madam, uh, did that hurt you at all? Oh, no, not at all. Well, did you feel anything? No, nothing. He didn't even touch me, so how could I? Dr. Silver told us the results of the test. This lady is suffering from a too active thyroid gland. Dr. Silver, how are you going to treat her? With the same radioactive iodine. A few years ago, she would have had to undergo a major operation. Now, she will drink a portion of radioactive iodine, which is tasteless. The radiation will kill as much of the thyroid gland as we want to eliminate, and she'll walk away thinking she has just had a glass of water. Is there anything else that you can use radioactive iodine for? Yes, when radioactive iodine is incorporated into a dye, we can locate certain types of brain tumors. And it's also very useful in diagnosing the thyroid cancer which has spread about the body. These were actual recordings you heard made by United Nations Radio at Mount Sinai Hospital in New York. At other hospitals and universities in many countries, similar work is going on. And by the use of radioactive isotopes, we are coming very near the secret of life itself. Listen. A plant will use the energy of sunlight to build its food from water and air. A cornstalk grows up. A cow eats the cornstalk. A man eats the corn and or part of the cow. The best roast beef I've had this year. But how does this process begin? How does the plant use the sunlight to make the food it passes on to us? This is photosynthesis, one of the basic mysteries of biology, the science of life. We are near its solution, says Mr. Louis Strauss, in these words to the New York Academy of Medicine. 